0: The votes in Georgia for the presidential election have been counted three times, confirming that President-elect Joe Biden beat President Trump by 11,779 votes in the traditionally Republican state. But in a 62-minute call on Saturday, just days before Congress is scheduled to certify the election results, President Trump pressured Georgia election officials to find thousands of votes and recalculate the election result to flip the state to him, just enough for him to pass Biden by one vote.
1: All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have.
0: Georgia officials responded by saying they have no evidence of widespread fraud, and they'll stand by the election results. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brafald, a professor at Columbia Law School. First of all, what is your reaction to President Trump calling Georgia's Secretary of State and asking him to find 11,780 votes?
1: It looks a lot like he is asking the Secretary of State to commit a crime, and in so doing, it looks like he is committing a crime. I mean, it is illegal to attempt to deprive the residents of a state of, of a fair and impartial election. I'm quoted from the relevant federal law it's illegal to procure or cause the tabulation of ballots that are known to be false or fraudulent and that's again a pretty close paraphrase of the federal law and there's a similar georgia law that basically makes it a crime to solicit somebody to commit election fraud given all of the audits and reaudits and recounts that georgia has been through as well as all the litigation it's been resolved and resolved and resolved again so to say can't you find the 11,000 votes for me sounds an awful lot like asking somebody to commit fraud, and that itself is a crime. Now, the only thing that sort of draws you back from this is criminal laws usually require that the action be knowing and willful, that that the person committing the act knows that it's a crime. And one thing that's a little hard to tell from all this is whether the president really believes that there are all these fraudulent votes out there and all these uncounted votes, or whether it's just you know, a gimmick and whether maybe he should believe it given all of the court decisions and all of the recounts that have occurred. So, to try and push somebody to coerce by threatening with prosecution or to somehow induce somebody to commit election fraud is itself a crime, both federally and in Georgia. And the only holdup is this issue of state of mind. You have to be able to prove that. This was done knowing that this would be committing fraud.
0: There's also the rambling nature of the call with President Trump jumping back and forth between issues. And there's no explicit threat. I
1: mean, in some ways, it's a little bit like from what we know about the Ukraine call, except this one's on tape. But he doesn't outright demand something. It's kind of um, he's asking and then he's giving evidence. But, you know, I haven't listened to very many tapes of mob bosses, but people tell me that that's what it sounds like. They very rarely say outright, you must do this. They kind of set it up in a certain way that puts pressure. I mean, I think it sure looks and feels a lot like asking somebody to commit election fraud, whether it actually crosses that line, given state of mind and given if you parse it word by word would be a closer question. But certainly, whatever it is, it's totally improper, whether it is an outright crime. And there's certainly a case for calling it an outright crime.
0: The big question also is, who would prosecute this crime? Well, of course, right now,
1: the federal government can't. is probably not going to prosecute each the president. But uh, presuming he doesn't attempt to pardon himself, um, and there is a huge debate about whether a president can self-pardon, starting on January 21, the U.S. attorney, uh, or I guess starting on the afternoon of January twentieth, U.S. attorney could bring a case. And, of course, it violates, uh, or at least there is a good argument that it violates Georgia law, and presumably the uh, a local district attorney, um, the district attorney, I guess, of the county where the state officials were sitting, I think that's Fulton County, uh, could also open an investigation. And the president cannot pardon himself for crimes committed under state law.
0: Joe Biden has said that he's going to let the Justice Department do what it, the Justice Department is supposed to do without any influence yeah. from him. There's also a political question of whether... The Biden administration wants to start by prosecuting the former president.
1: Right. I mean, there are prudential questions as to whether this is a, a wise move. I mean, uh, the case for opening an investigation is that this is it's one thing to sort of try and perhaps somebody to try and commit election fraud. It's something else. When the president of the United States is himself involved in a possible election fraud. And so given the stakes, there's a lot to be said for saying, you know, that nobody is above the law. On the other hand, I, I could certainly understand the desire to put it all behind, especially since it probably, if this ever got into court, it probably is not completely open and shut. But there's certainly a lot of, a lot there that could support an investigation and possibly an indictment.
0: So far, yep. we have a federal court dismissing the lawsuit that, Congressman Louie Gohmert brought right. against Vice President Pence. What did you get from that dismissal?
1: Well, they were utterly impatient with it. I mean, I think even more than the dismissal by the district court is dismissal by the Court of Appeals, uh, which didn't even wait until it was briefed. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Gohmert appealed immediately uh, and the Court of Appeals knocked it out before, even before all the papers were filed. Um, it's a pretty preposterous lawsuit. I mean, It was not decided on the merits, but it was decided on on standing and and other technical issues. But uh, on the merits, um, the idea that the vice president has a substantive role to play uh, just makes no sense, uh, given that, you know, in many elections, including this one, the vice president himself will be affected by the outcome. So the idea that you would give him a role in deciding whether or not he wins his own election uh, and give him um, a substantive role just makes no sense.
0: On Wednesday, nearly a dozen senators are going to be joining with dozens of their colleagues in the House in objecting to votes from several closely fought states where Trump has claimed baselessly that fraud cost him the election. There is a legal basis for that, isn't there?
1: Yes. Um, So under the combination of the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act, which is the law that Congress adopted in 1887 to govern the, this exact process. Um, the, uh, the electoral votes are uh, on January 6th, uh, and this is by statute, Congress comes into session. Um, the envelopes that contain the submissions from the 50 states and District of Columbia are opened um, by the vice president, who is the president of the Senate. Uh, the Congress sits together, the House and the Senate sit in one chamber, the House chamber. And then they're handed over to the clerks. And the clerks then read them in the states in alphabetical order. Um, I guess Alabama's first. I forget the number of electoral votes Alabama's, last I think it's nine, but I'm not completely confident of that. And that's accepted unless somebody objects. Under the law, you need to have one member of the House and one member of the Senate both object. If only somebody from one chamber objects, nothing happens. You need to have one member from each chamber to object. If that occurs, then they are supposed to recess. Each chamber is supposed to meet separately. And debate for up to two hours as to whether or not they should accept or reject the vote from the the, the challenged state. Um, but under the law, both chambers have to say no uh, when presented with a set of with the electoral votes of the state if they want to reject it. So you would need both the House and the Senate to say no. Seems very unlikely that the House is going to say no, since the House has a, a narrow Democratic majority, and given the number of Republican senators in the, in the Senate who said they're not going to say no, seems unlikely the Senate will say no either. But the process will take time because not only is there two hours of debate, but they actually would need to vote. And under COVID circumstances, uh, with the chambers not being full, the vote could take some time, particularly in the House, which is a very big body. So it's conceivable that the vote itself will take an hour or more. And there would be a separate vote on each challenged state, And we don't know how many states the Republicans intend to challenge. Uh, I guess we've been hearing hearing about a maximum of six, six states that were somewhat close in the final count. But that could mean that this could take at least 12 hours and probably close at least 18, counting the time it takes to vote. So they could be very well debating during the night. And this could very well take until the morning or maybe even midday on the 7th until it's resolved, if they really want to go ahead and have a debate on each of them, and I'm guessing it's six states, that they might want to challenge.
0: So, Rich, I have a question about that 1880s law. Doesn't it contemplate that there's two competing groups of electors that are being presented by the state?
1: There are two different scenarios. One is if there is uh, one set of electors, and what I was describing was a scenario for challenging that. That's all there is. There's no, there are no other official submitted electors from any of the states. All the states have submitted just one set of electors. The other scenario, and this does deal with something which occurred in the 1876 election, which led to the 1887 law, is that there were disagreements in the states and in a couple of the states in 1876, the governor sent in one set of electors and the legislature sent in something else. If it's two dueling sets of electors, Um, The two chambers have to agree, but if if they can't agree, it's supposed to be the set that the governor signed. So there is a safety valve if they disagree. Whereas if it's just one set of electors, if they disagree, those electors count because you need both chambers to vote them down.
0: So the prevailing wisdom is that there is no possible way that – the votes won't be counted and Joe Biden won't be deemed the winner. Do you agree with that? No possible way.
1: I'm going to say that given how insane this entire (laughs) year has been, I don't want to say that. Uh, But I will say that there is no kind of legal or constitutional way that all of the law, the constitutional and legal provisions and the votes that we know of in Congress all point in the direction that this may take longer than normal Uh, longer than ever before, but that they will all be, that they'll all be resolved and Biden will get his, I think it's 306 electoral votes. It might take 24 hours, but that should be the way it works out.
0: There is reporting that Vice President Pence's aides are developing a plan for him to acknowledge the reality of the November election, but at the same time making a statement about President Trump's claims about election fraud that have been disproven. Is there room for him to do that, to make a statement?
1: My impression is that's never happened, but I don't know anything that would stop it. He is the presiding officer. He's got the gavel, So it would be hard to see how he could be stopped, I suppose. Members of Congress could object, but um, since I don't think anything like that has happened before. We don't know how that scenario would play out.
0: He to have the
1: gavel. He is standing up on the rostrum, and it's possible.
0: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafault of Columbia Law School. A D.C. federal appellate court has ruled that requests for information by congressional oversight panels don't require the approval of the majority members. The two-to-one decision overturned a district court opinion for the Trump administration. The appellate court's decision affirms the right of minorities on the oversight committees, at least seven members on the House Committee and five in the Senate, to request information from federal agencies and to get the courts to step in if the agencies refuse to comply with a request for information. That's distinct from the subpoena power of congressional committees, which requires a majority of the committee. Joining me is David Sklansky, a professor at Stanford Law School. Start by explaining what the lawsuit was all about.
2: So this is a lawsuit filed by Democratic members of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. They sued the General Services Administration for failing to give them information that they had requested about the lease of the old post office building in the District of Columbia to Donald Trump and his company.
0: So now, this is under the seven-member rule, not about a subpoena.
2: That's correct. Um, there's a federal statute that says that a certain number of members of either the Senate uh, Oversight Committee or the House Oversight Committee, it's five members of the Senate Committee or seven members of the House Committee, can request information on any matter within the purview of, of the committee. From the executive branch, and the executive branch has to supply it. That's without a subpoena. The lawsuit was brought by seven Democratic members of uh, the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, and they requested information pursuant to this federal statute, and the administration refused to provide it. So they went to court.
0: So tell us what happened at the trial court level. The trial court, the
2: federal district court um, in the District of Columbia, ruled against the plaintiffs because the trial court said that they lacked standing. And standing is a technical legal doctrine that says that uh, federal courts can't decide questions the abstract. They can only decide question. They can only take on a case when there's something concrete at Stake, and it has to be at stake between the people who are bringing the case and the people who are being sued. So I can't sue, for example, because I think that my son was unfairly taken advantage of or cheated out of something. And you also can't sue even if some organization that you're a part of um, has been wrong. So I'm a professor at Stanford. But I can't sue because I think Stanford University has a right that was infringed on somehow, or Stanford University was unfairly damaged. And that's true for members of Congress, too. Members of Congress generally uh, are not allowed to sue because they think that Congress is not being treated well. But they can sue if they individually have been injured in some way that the court has the power to redress. So the district court said that these members of Congress uh, lacked standing to complain about a violation of this statute because the statute didn't really protect them. It protected Congress. So the House of Representatives could sue, but these individual members couldn't sue. That's what the trial court said.
0: Okay, so tell us now what the appellate court said.
2: The appellate Court said it's not true that these individual members of Congress weren't hurt. They were hurt. This is a statute that gives a right to groups of congressional representatives to request information from the executive branch, even when they're in the minority. So it's an unusual statute in that way. And there is something real at stake here. The Court of Appeal said between these individual members and the administration. These individual members say, we have a right to this information under the statute. And the executive branch said, we're not giving it to you. So the Court of Appeal said, these members do have standing to pursue this lawsuit. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to win. It doesn't mean that they have a right to the information. It doesn't even mean that the court ultimately should decide whether they have a right to the information. Because the Court of appeal said that the trial court can consider uh, an argument that the Trump administration raised that it would be inappropriate for courts to get involved in this question altogether. The trial court can also consider an argument that the Trump administration raised that this statute doesn't give rights Members of Congress that they can pursue in court. And the trial court can consider an argument that the Trump administration raised um, that the kind of information that these members were requesting is not the kind of information that the statute authorizes them to request. So the Trump administration could still win in court when this goes back to the trial court, assuming that the administration continues to can pass the lawsuit. So the, the Court of Appeals didn't say that the plaintiff automatically win. It just said they don't lose on standing ground. Now, as a practical matter, uh, the administration is about to change hands. So there's going to be a new director of the General uh, Services Administration and a new president, and it's highly unlikely that the new administration is going to continue to resist giving this information to Congress. So the suit is likely to become uh, moot uh, once the new administration takes over. Um, What what will stay on the books, though, is the decision by the Court of Appeals that a a minority, uh, a group of minority members of either of the Congressional Oversight Committees, the Senate Oversight Committee or the House Oversight Committee, uh, can sue in court to force the administration to comply with requests that are made pursuant to this federal statute, uh, Section 2954 Title V.
0: Does this ruling fit in with the way the Supreme Court has ruled in cases recently involving Congress suing?
2: Well, that's what the Court of Appeals disagreed about. So, so the, the, as is normal, when a federal Court of Appeals decide the case, The case was decided by a three-judge panel, three of the judges on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And those judges split two to one. Two of the judges thought that the request that these members of Congress were making and the lawsuit that they filed falls within the decisions that the United States Supreme Court has made about when Congress is allowed to sue and when congressional committees are allowed to sue. Because the United States Supreme Court has made it clear that the House of Representatives can sue to uh, get judicial enforcement of its rights under the law, and congressional committees can sue to enforce their subpoenas. On the other hand, individual members of Congress can't sue complaining that the committee or uh a or the House of Representatives as a whole or the Senate as a whole, was unfairly treated and uh, didn't get what they're entitled to under the law. so the question in this case is, is a group of five members of the Senate committee or seven members of the House committee, is that um, like uh when those people sue, is that like an individual member of Congress suing saying? I think Congress has uh, has been injured, or is it like um, individual members of Congress doing when they, in fact, themselves have been injured? So th- there was a disagreement uh, among the three judges, and two of them said that uh, the Supreme Court's earlier decisions suggest that these members of Congress have standing, and one member of the court thought otherwise. He said that the decisions of the United States Supreme Court properly interpreted suggest that these members don't have standing.
0: Congressional subpoenas seem to be not worth the paper they're written on recently, at least in the last four years, because it doesn't seem like there's any enforcement power. They have to go into the courts and then it takes forever. And as we've seen in many cases, the Trump administration is coming to an end before some of these cases are coming to an end. So is this a better way, like for this one oversight committee to get information an easier way than through subpoena?
2: Well, it's easier in the sense that the party that is in the minority can request this information without getting uh, the committee as a whole to approve it. But once the request is made, if the administration fails to comply, you have the same problem that you have with subpoenas, that uh, enforcing right to information in federal court can take a long time um, and the administration can run down the clock. That's exactly what happened here. This decision is coming at the very end of the Trump administration. Now, I wouldn't say that that means that it's useless. Um, It happens that Trump lost the election and he's on his way out. But if he had won the election, he would have been in office for another four years, and it would have been meaningful that the court had said that there was a right to this information. Still, it's unclear how quickly they would have gotten the information, even with this ruling. Because as I mentioned, the ruling just says that that the standing doctrine doesn't block this suit. The administration still had other arguments for why the, the lawsuit shouldn't be allowed and why they shouldn't be required to turn over the information. And it could well be that litigating those additional issues would have taken another four years.
0: Thanks so much for being on the show. That's David Skolansky, a professor at Stanford Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please listen to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio.